Good morning. My name is Noah Klippenstein, and I'll be reading to you from the book of Nehemiah and Mark. Nehemiah 1, 1 through 9. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, that your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Noah. Good morning. My name is Daisy Richardson, and I'm on staff here at Hillcrest, and it's my pleasure to be able to share with you this morning from Nehemiah. If you're new to Hillcrest or you haven't been around for a little while, um, let me just tell you that we have been on a long journey through the Bible. We started back in September with the story, um, and we started, and we have been traveling through the Old Testament. We're going to go all the way through the New Testament as well. And we've been using a resource called the story, which is scripture put together in a chronological order so that we can see God's one big picture, his one big story at work. And if your family doesn't already have a copy of the story, we have a free copy for you. You can just pop over to the information desk after service. We'd love to give that to you so you can follow along. Now, as you were reading, hopefully, this week, did anyone realize we're at the end of the Old Testament? We made it through the Old Testament. You can elbow the person next to you or give an air high five since it's flu season and say, we made it. That may have been the longest you've ever spent in the Old Testament. Maybe that was the first time that you've waded through a lot of what we, um, what we have been going through. So t today we're going to wrap up in the Old Testament, 
And as we've been going through the Old Testament, and the posters on the side will help jog our memories some, it's almost like the heartbeat is getting louder and louder and louder of God's plan for his people as we're getting closer and closer to the climax when he will send his son, Jesus, because that's where we're going. So the next six weeks or so are going to be really exciting. Plan to be with us. And if you can't be here, follow us online and listen to the podcast. You can go hillcrestmj.com and find them there. We're beginning the New Testament next week, and we'll be exploring the teachings and the life of Jesus, um, leading us right into Easter. So it's a great time to invite somebody to come along with you, too, and hear about Jesus. Um, You never know when an invitation could be a turning point in somebody's life. So here's the core of the story, the big story. God, the creator of the universe, wants to be in community with human beings, But sin enters the human spiritual DNA and destroys the community people have with God. That happens, huh? It happens on that first poster. It destroys the community that his people have with God and with each other. Right back there with Adam and Eve. And then the rest of the Bible is the story about God winning us back to himself. And it starts with Abraham and a new nation and then it continues on. And we're going to hear that story through Christ as well. But there's always two stories unfolding here. We're watching the big upper story of God's plan of redemption, of bringing his people back to himself, pursuing them and relationship with them. And then there's the the lower story, and that's the individual stories of the people that he's using to walk through. And you know what? If we're honest, a lot of times those lower stories look like a big mess, don't they? They look like a big mess. A few weeks ago, we heard from Pastor Steve. Two weeks ago, we heard about the Jewish people who had went for the first time. The Jewish people had been exiled to Babylon, and that had happened a long time before this. And now they're under Persian rule. And Zerubbabel, there's a fun name to say, under the Persian king Cyrus, sends or takes 50,000 Jews back to rebuild the temple. We heard that story. And they had varying degrees of success. They were kind of slow in getting the work done. But that had already happened. And then last week, we heard about a Jewish woman named Esther who marries the Persian king Xerxes, and God uses her to prevent a genocide among the Jewish Jewish people. So he is at work. And this is where we find ourselves. We're going to look in the book of Nehemiah, even as Noah's already read for us. But we've seen so many points in history when it seems like it would have just been easier for God to say, let's scrap the whole plan and start again. And who would have blamed him? Adam and Eve reject his plan. Instead of displaying his glory, they want all the glory for themselves. Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife twice. Um, Jacob is this deceiver. Moses has an issue with his temper. King David commits adultery and then murders the woman's husband to try to cover up his sin. Prophets deal with depression and impurity, unfaithful spouses and broken families, and the list goes on and on. And the nation of Israel turns away again and again and again. And finally, the kingdom becomes divided. But they were not without hope because God was not without a plan. Their disobedience had come at a high cost, and that's what happened with the exile, that they had lost their homeland. The temple was destroyed. Their homes were destroyed and pillaged, and they were taken off and carried away. But as we figured out, the story wasn't over yet. God wasn't finished with his people because God had made a covenant with his people, a promise, and when he makes a covenant, he sticks to it unconditionally. So this is the truth that the Israelites would discover, and I hope will be 
relatable for us as well, I know that it is, is that your mess, my mess, is no match for God's mercy. Your mess is no match for God's mercy. That's what we're going to see in Nehemiah's story today. So 70 years have passed since the exile, and just as God promised, Jews have begun to return to Jerusalem, and the temple had been started to be rebuilt. And this is where we're introduced to this character of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, he's Jewish, but he's serving the Persian king Artaxerxes, who sounds like his father, Xerxes. This is one of his sons. And they are 1,600 kilometers or so, that's how long it would be if you traveled the way that they would travel, from Jerusalem in Persia. Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem before. He's never been to Israel before. And he's working as the king's cupbearer. So some of his duties would include tasting the king's food and wine to make sure he wasn't being poisoned. So I was thinking to myself, do they give you that job because they like you or because they don't like you? But actually, it was a position of trust because you could be the, otherwise you could be the guy that was killing the king. They were trusting that you weren't, you were the last stop and it wasn't going to happen. So he was in a position of trust and Pastor Steve was... Um, commenting to me this week, isn't it interesting how we see, we still see Jews in high levels of government positions, in positions of trust in the Persian kingdom. And maybe this is still Mordecai's influence from the story of Esther um, because, because of the favor that he had been shown. So here we are, Nehemiah serving the king, and his heart somehow is still drawn back to his people who have returned to Jerusalem. 140 or 142 years have passed since the whole thing happened. And I was thinking about that. So the Jewish people at this point, they have been in a foreign land for that many years. They've lost their culture, probably their language. They've lost a lot of their identity. And I thought 142 years, that's not that far off from how long it's been since Canada's been the Dominion of Canada. I've studied for Canadian citizenship with my newcomer friends, and the British North America Act of 1867, that's only 153 years ago. So we're only a decade out of how long it had been that they had been far away from their people and their land. Now, how many of you with British descent are ready to just pack up your bags and head back to Britain? Well, this is probably home. It probably feels kind of normal, and maybe that's how the Jews in exile were feeling. It was kind of home, but not Nehemiah. He was some, something in him was still drawn back. So one day, one of his friends or, or relatives, Hananiah, he comes and he's just returned from visiting Jeremiah. Now watch, in the story, the, the action's going to move quickly, but it really doesn't in real life because they have to travel 1,600 kilometers by foot or horse or camel or whatever they're doing. So in real life, the, it's moving a little bit slower. Hananiah comes back. He's just returned from a visit to Jerusalem, and Nehemiah is so curious and intrigued. What is it like? How are the people doing? We, he could only imagine, you know, the picture that he might have had in his mind. Finally, God's people have returned to the promised land. They've rebuilt the temple. It must be glorious. It sounds like paradise. And Hananiah says, so you don't know? Well, no, what? No, I don't know anything. Tell me everything. And Hananiah goes on to say what we read. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. The gates have been burned with fire. No walls, no gates. Nehemiah sits down. He's defeated. He's shocked, and he begins to weep. He's absolutely undone. 
So they needed a few renovations. What was the big deal? A few broken walls, a few burnt out gates. No, it was a big deal. And Nehemiah knew it was a big deal. You see, in ancient times, the lack of a city wall meant that the people were defenseless against their enemies. The city walls represented not only the strength of the people who lived in them, but to the outside world were a reflection of the strength of their God. So not only were they living unprotected, but it would appear to have been shameful for their God to have left them this way. God's people were essentially, they were just sitting completely exposed and helpless. And this was the situation of the Jews in the homeland. This is what Nehemiah finds out later, that they're poor, that they're enslaving their own children to pay their taxes. They're selling their children as slaves because they can't afford taxes. They're short on food. They've lost their homes and their fields and their vineyards all to pay their taxes because they're under this heavy burden and demands of local governors, some of whom are of Jewish descent but are misusing their power. So Nehemiah is moved with compassion for people that he's never met, but they're his people and they're God's people. And he cries out. When he hears these things, he sits down and he weeps. And it says, for some days, in verse 4, I mourned and I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer and hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. There's very much so this collective mentality, this um, communal mentality. He's not just worried about himself. But why does Nehemiah start to confess sin? Well, he knew what was at stake. You see, just a little bit before that, he says, God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah knows that if God's people are living in shambles and chaos, that they're not following God. And this was not just about the physical renewal of a city whose walls needed to be physically rebuilt, but it was about spiritual renewal for God's people. So Nehemiah keeps praying. In fact, the story seems to move on super quickly, but he actually prays for five months. And he prays and he asks God for favor with King Artaxerxes. Um, who 13 years earlier, incidentally, had sent the prophet Ezra back, said, go, rebuild community, teach them a Torah. Sure, that sounds fine. Well, God hears Nehemiah's cry and grants him great favor with the king. In fact, one day he's serving the king, and the king says, what is wrong? Are you sad? Are you sick? I've never seen you like this. And Nehemiah's very nervous, but he tells the king all about the plight of his people. And then the king says, well, what can I do to help? And in that moment, Nehemiah says, terrified. It says, I was terrified, and I prayed quickly, and then said, send me with all of this, and listed all this stuff that he could take with him to help rebuild the walls. So the king says, sure, go do it, and along with it, we'll completely financially back you out of the royal treasury, I'll send you letters to give you favor with the governors as you travel, um, because the Persian Empire is really huge, this is all part of it, and the king, on top of it all, appoints Nehemiah as the new governor in Judah. There's a promotion in it for him. Now, this is no small feat. In the book of Ezra, a little while earlier, we're told that the leaders uh, around Jerusalem were scheming, and they sent a scathing letter to King Artaxerxes, the same king, and they asked him to stop anyone from ever trying to rebuild the walls of this rebellious and wicked city, a place of rebellion since ancient times. They, like, 
they don't want anybody to come help the Jews. And King Artaxerxes says, sure, fine. Nobody's allowed to fix it. So God moves his heart. I don't know how much later this is when Nehemiah speaks with him, but God shifts the heart of a king to accomplish his plan. It's a huge shift. So time passes, but Nehemiah is sent. I don't, it doesn't tell us how long it takes him to actually get there. Um, he's sent to Jerusalem, and he's sent with all sorts of supplies and everything. He's the new governor, and you'd think there would be a huge parade and a grand entrance. But no, he doesn't do it like that. Nehemiah comes. They must have known they had a new governor, but he doesn't tell them why he's there, and he doesn't make a big deal about it. In fact, he comes in kind of quietly. I'm not sure how you do that with a cavalry, but he does. And he just waits, and after three days at night, he takes a couple of his men, and they go and they survey the walls, and they walk it themselves to discover what exactly needs to be done. And after he sees the situation himself, and after he prays, he goes to the people, and we read this in Nehemiah 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. They knew it. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. So they replied, let's do it. Let's start rebuilding. And they began the good work. Now, the people were eager to get started on the work, and they're pretty enthusiastic about this, but the neighboring governors are not. They all noticed when a new governor gets sent into their area and shows up, and, is, and they're very upset that he's starting to help the Jews. One in particular, he was the governor of Samaria, and his name was Sanballat. And Samaritans, if you'll remember, have mixed Jewish heritage. So they have some, but they're kind of scorned because of that, because they're mixed. Um, and he's the governor of Samaria. He stands to lose some political power in this whole thing or something. There's a lot of politics going on. And so he accuses Nehemiah of rebelling against the king. And Nehemiah says, nothing. There's nothing like that going on. So Sanballat, and then he's got this sidekick, Tobiah, who's an Ammonite, who they worship Moloch, like they're not even part Jews or anything. And they do everything they can to badmouth and mock and ridicule Nehemiah and his workers and discourage the work from happening. And at one point, they've been trying to blackmail Nehemiah. They've been trying to get him to come meet with them. And after four failed tries, they finally, they send this draft of a letter to King Artaxerxes. And they try to blackmail him saying, if you don't come meet with us, then we're going to send this letter to the king saying how you're trying to set yourself up as king in Jerusalem of all Judah and rebel against him. And Nehemiah is just like, that's all in your head. And he keeps going. And so their next strategy, they plot to kill him. Um, and so as the walls start going up, the blood pressure of the enemy is going up too. But their scheming doesn't work. Nehemiah stands strong, and he refuses to be distracted by his enemies. The Jews gather from the surrounding communities, and they keep building, working with all their heart, we're told. There's this beautiful little piece in there where Nehemiah posts entire communities by family at the lowest points of the wall, at the exposed places so that the work of rebuilding could continue and they could protect their workers at the same time. So it says that some would actually be working with a brick in one hand and a weapon in the other, or they would be working and right behind them, there was a guard guarding them. They didn't change their clothes because they were workers by day and guards by night, and they worked on and on. 
In Nehemiah 4.14, he exhorts them, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families. Well, God does a miracle. Again, it only takes 52 days for the wall to be rebuilt, which was shocking to everybody, especially to those, those who had opposed them. And the city is again safe and protected. The people gather together, and instead of giving each other high fives, they turn their hearts to God. And the prophet Ezra, who's been there already um, with the people, he reads the word of God to the people in Nehemiah 8. He reads the scriptures, and the Levites, who are God's servants at the temple, they interpret it to the people so they could understand it, and they promise to obey it. It wasn't just that they were explaining, this is what God's word says, and here's how you should apply it. It's that they probably had to do interpretate like they had to translate it into the language because these half the people wouldn't have spoken the language that it was written in so there was a lot of explaining happening but they say yes this is our fresh start yes we're going to follow God's word yes and it seems like such you know the happy ending that we're waiting for some of their mess looks better but it actually isn't over yet spoiler alert by the end of the book of Nehemiah which is only you know a dozen years later here they are, back to their old ways. They're enjoying a great wall and a safe city, but ignoring God's law and promises that they had made to follow him. And we keep seeing this again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, that you can have these great things in place, the temple can be all beautiful, and the walls can be all strong, but it doesn't fix hearts that need to be renewed. And you see, again, the faithfulness of God to pursue yet again yet again, yet again, even when they are unfaithful to hold up their part. It just is a little messy, isn't it? And if we're honest, that's the way our lives are too. And if you have kids, you know kids bring mess with them. Uh, oh, there was some great passage I read last week. It's totally unrelated. But it was talking about if there's no oxen, the barn stays clean. I thought, huh. Well, if there were no kids, the house would stay clean. <laughs> but but I, there was some point to it. You're, it was a good thing that you had the oxen. It was a good thing that you had the kids. <laughs> but we've been over the February break, I think it was, or something. We had started watching the Toy Story series again with our boys because they, we realized they hadn't seen them all because I'd kept them from seeing some of them, especially that first one with the psycho neighbor kid, Sid, who destroys the toys. Remember that one? And we are watching this one, and Cowboy Woody, if you remember the movies, he's jealous because there's this new space toy, Buzz Lightyear, who's cooler than him, and he accidentally knocks him out the window and into Sid's yard, and much to the horror of the other, um, the other toys. And so then Woody kind of reluctantly, he's trying to save face, and so he goes to try to rescue him, and they go into all this trouble, and everything just gets worse and worse, and, you know, Buzz's arm falls off and all these kinds of things. And then finally, they've kind of reconciled with each other, but they're trying to still escape back to their own home. And they can see the toys in the window of their house from the bad kid's window. And it just seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse. And I'll just show you very quickly, if we've got it, a quick little clip of what happens in their mess. Buzz, will you help me? Will you lend me a hand? There it is. Maybe we don't have it. Sorry, we've had... Oh. Just a sec. Buzz, will you get up here and give me a hand? <laughs> That's very funny, Buzz. This is serious! Something screwy here. So, you see, we're friends now, guys. Aren't we, Buzz? You bet. Give me a hug. <laughs> oh, I love you too. 
What are you trying to pull? Nothing. Oh, that is disgusting. Murderer! So he tries and he tries. He just gets himself in deeper. It's just a great big mess. And if you've watched these movies, especially with a six or seven-year-old, it's just very hard on their emotions because one thing happens after another after another, and they just seem to make it worse. And you can tell how they can fix it, but they can't hear you no matter how much you shout at the screen. And it just gets messier. It's kind of like the Old Testament. We can see what they're going to do. It's going to be wrong. That's going to be a bad choice. Don't do it. Have you ever found yourself in a mess? Of course, we all have. And maybe like the characters in the movie or like Nehemiah, you've tried to fix it. And maybe sometimes it even felt like it got messier. Life is messy. People can be messy. Maybe yours is a financial mess. Or maybe it's the mess of a marriage or the mess of failed exams or the mess of addiction or the mess of your own selfish heart, my own selfish heart. What does your mess look like? Maybe it's not even a mess that you've made, but it's the result of living in a messy world. I talk with my kids all the time about this. We have a broken world. Things get messy. Relationships are messy. Politics are messy. Health journeys are messy. Where could a story possibly go from here? When would you ever have a chance to start over? And if you did, where would you start? I just want to point out three things that we learn from Nehemiah in his journey of rebuilding. The first one is that his rebuilding starts with prayer. Prayer is just right at the center of it. It's our temptation when we're in a mess to say, what am I going to do about it now? Nehemiah doesn't do that. He immediately goes to the only one who can do anything about it. And what does he do in prayer? He reminds himself of who God is over and over. Glorious, great, awesome, faithful, and then he pleads uh, for God to hear his prayer, and he confesses sin. That may sound strange to you, and maybe confession is new to you. Kurt already mentioned it. We have a set-free retreat coming up in two weeks, March 13th and 14th. Come, learn what confession is. Learn how free your heart can live after you've confessed and been healed. This morning, and I can't read it all to you, but I'm just going to give you a heads up. If you have kids in children's ministry this morning in the elementary, oh my goodness, Pastor Laura is teaching amazing things about all the ways that Nehemiah prayed. He prayed big, he prayed deep, he prayed long, he prayed quick, he prayed defensively, he prayed together, he prayed as he went, he prayed believing, he prayed his praise. There's a whole bunch of fabulous stuff on that. Don't, don't recycle this one. Take this one. Stick it on your fridge when you get it, when your kid ho comes home with it today. It's amazing. His journey starts with prayer, and it can be true for us too. We all have exposed places in our lives, places that we're vulnerable, vulnerable, the lowest places in the wall that we need people to come around us and help support. We heard it in the story of Esther. One of the best things that she did was calling the, her people to fast and pray before she had a significant thing to do. Um, prayer is such a key weapon as we move forward. In Nehemiah's case, he prayed, he saw God answer, he prayed in all these different situations. And when his enemies figured that nothing else would work, they thought, oh, well, if we can't get him to stop, we'll just distract him from doing the work. And that's the second one. We learn to pray when we're rebuilding, but rebuilding requires focus. That's our second one. It's so easy for us to get distracted 
we don't even notice that it's happening. That'll be the, one of the enemy's quick tactics for us is just let's just distract them. But what does Nehemiah said? Say, he says to his enemies, I've got an important project going on here. Why should this work stop while I leave it and go down to you? And off he goes and keeps doing his project. He refused to be distracted by the voice of the enemy. What is God calling you to focus on? What is trying to distract you from what you know he's called you to focus on, who he's called you to be? Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our weapons are not physical. We're not physically holding a weapon and a brick. We're not physically there to rebuild a wall. Prayer is one of our weapons. Focusing on the one who has called us is another one. You have influence in your life, and maybe what you're being called to do, maybe you're being called to come and stand in the part of somebody's broken down wall where, the, where it's the lowest, where they need support. Maybe you're going to surround them with love and care and prayers. Maybe that's what he's calling you to do. Out of his mercy that he knows how to meet those needs. Nehemiah prayed a lot, and boy, there was a lot of focus involved in what he was doing. And they didn't lose focus at the end, because they could have really congratulated themselves at the end of the building of the wall, not the book. They could have just congratulated themselves and said, we're so much better than our enemies, look how swiftly we can work, look at our teamwork. But no, they didn't. They actually turned their hearts to worship. And that's the third thing. We, can, we pray, we focus, and we need to turn our hearts to worship him. Ezra praises the Lord and he calls the people to praise. They realize that what has been accomplished is miraculous and only the God of heaven could have accomplished it. Our mess is, isn't any match for God's mercy, for his power. Do you know that his mercy has an actual name, the name of Jesus, that he is the expression, the embodiment of God's mercy toward us? And when God sees us, if you've been covered by the blood of Jesus, if you've followed him, if you follow him with your heart, he doesn't see our messy messiness. He sees Jesus in all his goodness, in all his righteousness. It's hard for us to imagine. It really is. I love this picture, and we'll just throw that picture up here, Harry. Um, Corey Ten Boom, who survived the Nazi war camps, often used this illustration, and she would show the backside of this embroidery and say, look, look at all the tangled threads, and the audience actually thought she was accidentally showing them that side, but look at all the mess. This is like what we see, that we don't understand what's happening. We just think, oh, it's just a mess, like the Old Testament, but we're looking at the wrong side, and what he sees for his glory Looks more like that. And that's the actual front and back of that piece. And she would carry this with her as she spoke to say, if we could only see things from his perspective, if we could only turn our eyes to how he sees us in Christ, if we could only turn our eyes to the big story that he is speaking to us through his word, of course our hearts would be turned to worship him. Of course we would recognize his love and his mercy and his awesome power. If you're so focused on that tangled, messy side, it's just going to be an inward focus. You need to lift your eyes to his side and focus on how he sees the big story. 
today, let's let the cross be the final word on how our story ends. Through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, our tangled mess can be redeemed. We can do what Nehemiah did. We can pray. We can focus on what he's called us to do and who he's called us to be. And we can worship. He's the same faithful God who guided Nehemiah, and he's the same God who will faithfully guide you. Would you stand with me? As we wrap up this morning, we're going to take a moment to pray. And part of what we're going to do is we're just going to, maybe it'll be the thousandth time you've done this. Maybe you've never done this. But we're going to take a moment to release our mess to him, to focus our minds and our hearts. And then we're going to worship again. Worship isn't just singing, but that's going to be a great way that we move our hearts towards him. So let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that your mercy is so great. We thank you that you are so faithful to relentlessly pursue our hearts again and again and again, even when we fail and fall short again and again and again. Thank you for providing Jesus as the answer, as the way that we can be reconciled to you, that we can have relationship with you. You are awesome and glorious, and we praise you for it. And this morning, we have a familiar prayer. We've prayed it a lot, but it's always very relevant. You could have prayed it many times before, and it, can, it helps me focus. Or maybe you want to pray it for the very first time. You say, yeah, I have a mess, and I've been holding on to it and trying to solve it, but I'm ready to hand that over to God. Let's pray this prayer together. Heavenly Father, Thank you that you love me and you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I give you my mess today. Help me to live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, in this moment, we want to ask you a question too. Is there anywhere you want to shift my focus? Ask him that question. Give him a moment to respond. Lord, we admit that we need you. We turn our hearts to focus on you. And even as we sing this last song, Lord, we want to express our love for you. Would you remind us of all you've done? Thank you, faithful, faithful Father, for what you've done. We turn our hearts to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.